Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. Today I'm joined by Luke Wortley, the new director of the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Danielle. I feel like you were doing this uh, same introduction not too long ago with someone else. (laughs) Just about a year, yeah. But uh, we are colleagues, so we do know each other. So forgive me if uh, I'm a little more conversational today. I'm happy to take over from Amna. Her leadership's always appreciated. She's going to be moving into expanding our efforts here at the Indiana Rural Health Association in the substance use prevention, treatment, and recovery space. So we're excited for that. So I have actually, this is actually my second stint at the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center. I came on as a program coordinator in 2017. Well, welcome back. I'm I'm happy to be back. The telehealth landscape has changed dramatically, even in the two years since I have not been full-time on the UMTRC. So it's a dynamic landscape. I'm excited to kind of dive in and see where we fit. Yeah, we're excited to have you back. So for those of our audience who, unlike me, are not already familiar with you, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I have a degree in Spanish and then a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, which are eminently good qualifications to be a telehealth expert. I I honestly didn't really know, know much about digital health whatsoever, despite coming from a healthcare family. Actually, my dad was a former executive vice president at a hospital system in Kentucky, And my mom has been an RN for over 30 years. So I've been intimately involved with outpatient care, inpatient care, all sorts of settings, administrative, you name it. And digital health, you know, even despite being born in 1990, Mm -hmm. there was really no talk of it really until, you know, I got into graduate school in 2012, at least in my experience. (laughs) So was joining the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center here at IRHA, was that when you really did get involved with telehealth? I'd say so, yeah. I mean, the implications for rural access to care were obvious uh, from jump. And then under Becky's leadership, I just learned so much and then transitioned to CAM and really sort of saw the, the scope of it attending the American Telehealth Association Conference for the first time. And they're just, the space has just grown so dramatically and the future looks both bright and a little fear inducing. There's, there's so much going on. It's a relatively chaotic landscape at the moment, I think. No, I'd agree. I also attended, I attended ATA, their annual conference earlier this year. And that really was an eye opener at just how expansive this field is and what it's going to look like in the next like five, 10 years. And it's, like you said, very exciting in some respects, but also fear-inducing in others. You know, I, I guess like I should say, just because telehealth wasn't, you know, necessarily on my radar until, you know, early 2000s, or not, sorry, the early 2010s, I should say, doesn't mean that it hasn't been around. I mean, there are some, right. there are some you know, vendors and solutions and providers who have been doing every variation of this care delivery mechanism for 20 years, you know. Particularly in the behavioral health space, I think this is something that has been around a lot longer than most people think. Because when I speak to folks about telehealth, they're like, oh, yeah, the thing that started during COVID. And it's like, no, it's been around for a lot longer than that. It has reached public prevalence in a way that it really didn't have prior to COVID. But it's been around. Like, and the the TRCs have been around since prior to the pandemic, despite the fact that many folks don't realize that. Yeah, I was one of those fortunate souls to be on the technical assistance receiving end here at UMTRC in March of 2020. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were entering our data for just, like, March and April of that year, and then again later on in the year when more federal regulations were lifted, we had thousands of percent increases over the course of the, like, previous 30 days Mm-hmm. of technical assistance requests that we had in the previous half grant year combined, you know? No, and that makes total sense because, like, if you look back to just the telehealth usage during that time, it's a J-curve. It's something that I did not expect to see outside of, like, models ever. But if you look at, like, what the telehealth usage was at the end of 2019 versus what it was during 2020, it's just... It's insane to look at the difference between those two rates. It has leveled off to, I think, I mean, still an incredible increase if you look at it by comparison to pre-pandemic usage rates, but it has started to to level off. And interestingly, most of the numbers that I've seen from, you know, a lot of the the reporting agencies, including, you know, academic journals and and other outlets that are sort of data aggregators, is that Actually, our region has been actually among the population the least likely to adopt telehealth nationally, which which I think is interesting, especially considering the major population centers in Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan in particular. I mean, I guess Indianapolis is a growing city, but certainly we're the 18th largest. <laughs> but certainly, but certainly, you know, not a politically or like culturally relevant population center like a. Chicago or a Detroit or something. Right, right. And I do think we get into the fact that the states in our region are, generally speaking, very rural with a couple of large population centers. And you look at those rural populations, and despite the fact that telehealth can be a great tool for access, the lack of broadband access and other complications that come with living in a rural or geographically isolated community means that telehealth is just harder to access in a lot of those uh, populations. Sure. I mean, and this isn't even getting into the multimodal, completely interdisciplinary, like nebulous issue of digital and device literacy or yeah. or anything like that. And, you know, I mean, broadband coverage is, is certainly exacerbated in rural communities, but it's not necessarily like specific to them either. You know, there's there's oh, pl- for sure. there are plenty of other barriers even to living in an urban center that maybe has buried fiber underneath the entire city. But if you are economically disadvantaged and you have to make really tough choices on any given month, you know, is is your Wi-Fi going to be secure or are you going to have to use like the McDonald's or the library? You know, that's the other side of the coin as well. Yeah. And I know that we've discussed that there are a lot more similarities between populations in urban areas and rural areas than most folks seem to think. Like the issues that they're facing with access are a lot of times extremely similar. Yeah, they sort of experience the same structural inequities in different ways that nevertheless manifest themselves in similar outcomes, especially right. especially among our most vulnerable populations, right? You know, people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, the elderly, veterans, people experiencing homelessness, you know, all of these all of these, you know, high risk populations for insert morbidity or mortality here, right? Exactly. Exactly. So to move away from our (laughs) sudden conversation about the larger usage of telehealth. No, sorry. I'm also our diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator here at IRHA. And so if you get me even remotely tangentially into the sort of inequality slash justice realm, I will go on. And to go back to college majors, I was a sociology major with a a concentration in inequality and like health inequalities. So anyone who has listened to this podcast before knows that that's also something that I can go on about ad nauseum. So we'll move away from that for now. (laughs) 
the UMTRC uh, is a large and interesting program, but what would you say the main purpose of the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center should be? The title sort of does it all, right? It is the resource <laughs> center. So obviously creating those resources, finding resources that have already been created for wider dissemination, providing those specific one-on-one or organization-to-organization technical assistance and training opportunities, all that stuff is in the scope of work, right? But the mm-hmm. purpose of the UMTRC, in my opinion, really is to help providers, patients, and organizations provide the best level of access to care along the entire continuum of care in what ways is deemed most appropriate by the people who know it best. Right. And then alternatively, I think that the other main purpose is to be a convening space for all of those key constituents and stakeholders to come to not only for specific questions about billing and coding or reimbursement, but also who do I talk to about this? You know, ideally we'll have that answer ready for them. And I do think that's so important because telehealth is at such a transitory period right now, as we sort of figure out what it's going to look like as part of the healthcare landscape in a year, in five years, in a decade. Uh, Yeah, and this isn't even necessarily (laughs) acknowledging the sort of hemispheric shifts that are going to be coming just in technology, the hardware hardware itself, right, and the software. This isn't even going to talk about what could happen legislatively or, or anything else. Yeah, so I think it's really valuable to have a space where those resources can be available and those questions can be answered. But like you said, also serving as kind of a convening point for folks uh, who are interested in telehealth and who do work in the telehealth space. So now that you are the at the helm, so to speak, of the UMTRC, are there any new initiatives that you're excited about pursuing? On a broad level, I mean, I kind of alluded to it already, which is just to sort of try to feel like a more connected region and, and, you know, that's that's hard. You know, the United States has some geographical barriers that some places don't have in terms of it just being enormous. You know, you can drive three hours in one direction and still be in the same state. Right. But you're in a wildly different place in that state, but they still have the same, like, rules and regulations to follow. And then another two hours, you're in a different state who have a different set of rules and regulations to follow. And while I think... Telehealth is nearly as close as we've gotten here in our four-state region as having a pretty similar set of circumstances in that regard. It is still difficult to feel like you are like moving the one ship to continue that metaphor, right? So I'm looking forward to, in the broadest, least specific sense possible, trying to build cross-state and regional partnerships that are that go beyond hey, if I've got a telehealth question, can I call you? That doesn't necessarily need to take the form of a conference or a seminar or anything, but work groups, consistent meetings, that kind of thing. I'm also looking forward to, you know, I also have a passing interest in academia as an adjunct faculty member here at Butler University in Indianapolis. I read a lot of academic research for grant writing. I keep up on the literature. The telehealth evidence base is still relatively shallow when compared to, you know, sort of traditional in-person care or even population and public health studies across the board. Mm -hmm. So I would love to get involved with a lot of the major universities throughout the region to at least say, hey, we're here, we're not working across purposes, we, you know, we don't have our own internal review board, like, we're not publishing stuff, you know, (laughs) we're not submitting to the same journals you are, but like, right, but 
if we could have an ear to the ground on, on what is being talked about, what is being studied. I'm not only interested from a personal fascination standpoint, but but I'm interested in it as an advocate for more efficient and equality and equitable use of telehealth. Oh, for sure. And I know that we've gotten a lot of good data from the incredible spike in usage during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more studies, more literature on all of that, because I know we're still in that transition period. We're still figuring out what the use of telehealth most ideally will be. I'm also really looking forward to seeing what we're seeing in the academic space related to those studies and uh, those findings. Yeah, data lag is always kind of the big concern when you're looking at anything that's even approaching a representative sample of a population as large as even a municipality in in some cases, but much less a county or a state or even the 340 plus million people of the United States. So, and and, you know, I'm talking, of course, very American-centric here, just because that's what we focus on. But I mean, it's not like this is the only place in the world where telehealth revolutions are, are happening. What do you think the ideal role of telehealth is in patient care? Like as a non-clinician, it's somewhat difficult for me to give any kind of hot take on this. Yeah. And it's a big question. It's a really big question. (laughs) And and of course, you know, we used to distinguish a lot more between telehealth and telemedicine. Right. Now I think everybody's sort of more comfortable using those terms kind of more interchangeably. Telehealth being the broader term, therefore the more accepted one, I think, just linguistically. Mm -hmm. But because it's so broad, it is really hard to think about what is optimal, especially given all of the other extenuating circumstances, potential barriers, exogenous factors that people who are operating either the platform, the patient, you know, or the the provider themselves, right, like have no control over. So, I mean, I think ideally, from my perspective right now, telehealth is best served as a supplement and occasional substitute for in-person care for a variety of modalities that can increase efficiency by not having to have somebody in the physical space at the same time. But there's no reason to say that some of the recent innovations aren't going to become more mainstream for even performing like what we would have considered incredibly technical procedures or exams or anything in the not so distant past that, you know, we would think, oh, there's no way we can't do that remotely. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know that that's the case, right? You know, it was unthinkable not long ago that teleobstetrics, for instance, would even be, you would be laughed out of the room. And now, you know, I just had a conversation with some graduate students at the University of British Columbia in Canada, and they are working with a lab that's developing a artificial intelligence and augmented reality system to allow a person, usually a nurse or, or an obstetrician, to perform an ultrasound remotely with just a regular layperson holding the wand and putting pressure on because they get the imaging from the equipment like in real time, mm-hmm. sometimes hundreds of miles away. And mm-hmm. that's wild. That's a like an amazing innovation. And it's something where a lot of the time, I don't know if it's the best way to deliver care, 
but often in terms of like accessibility, if it's that or nothing, I think it can be a really great tool for promoting uh, that health equity and allowing access to folks who just wouldn't have it otherwise. Absolutely. You know, and again, this is the ideal case, right? Where you are at worst a stopgap and at best a totally uh, viable substitute. But of course, as we know, in everything healthcare, you're always kind of somewhere in between. And full optimization, I just, I don't think we've, I don't think we've reached it. I don't think that we've settled in. As I say, it's, it's a hard question to answer as a non-clinician. And even then, as, as clinicians, you know, we know working with folks here in, in Indianapolis versus working with somebody in maybe rural Southern Indiana or even Southeastern Ohio or something, they may have preferences for what they think is the best use of telehealth for their particular patients. And like, who am I to say otherwise? Right. And as you mentioned before, of course, it it has done wonders for the mental and behavioral health space, just because physical examination is not necessarily like a requirement of that. So, you know, two-way audiovisual is great, especially if your entire county may not employ a single psychiatrist. (laughs) I think that is something that we have seen as kind of the uh, shining star of telehealth, particularly during the pandemic, we've seen that it just lends itself incredibly well to behavioral health as well as uh, substance use disorder treatment. Yeah. And it was a really big win for advocates, you know, like us during the first year of the public health emergency uh, for the federal government to lift restrictions on prescribing controlled substances via telehealth. And I know they're revisiting a lot of those rules uh, as we speak. Fingers crossed, right? It's it's an exciting time, but also everything legislatively is very precarious when it comes to that space. And it feels Mm -hmm. like sometimes incremental progress is the best you can hope for. So we'll keep providing the assistance according to whatever rules and regulations come down. And I'm sure we'll keep advocating in our own way for more expansive, inclusive and equitable change in the future. That's the hope. But since the end of the public health emergency, like you mentioned, that ended earlier this year in May, we've seen a lot of those waivers and permissions that were allowed on a temporary basis during the public health emergency. We've seen those be continued, mostly on temporary basis as we sort of gather more evidence and see what CMS and legislatively we want to do going forward. So Telehealth is in an extremely transitory place right now. So do you have any predictions about what the future of telehealth is going to look like in the short and long term? Again, another big question, I know. Sort of. Yeah, I have one definitive one and then a couple more that I'm very much speculating on. Like one of my (laughs) my my one definitive prediction is that I think the proliferation of large language learning software and artificial intelligence broadly is going to dramatically impact our work. And I think it's going to dramatically impact humanity at large, perhaps not in the like shortest of short terms as some people are sort of like catastrophizing, but certainly I'm a sort of mid-range millennial at this point. Uh, Certainly, (laughs) certainly in my lifetime, there will be like the equivalent of a technological revolution when that sort of capability and software becomes a more widely available, perhaps more energy efficient, and perhaps has been regulated. One can only hope, right? But that is my definitive prediction is I do think that we are going to have to contend 
with what are the practical implications of AI use, especially when it comes to improving efficiencies in healthcare. There are some exciting prospects, but like as we know, anything of this magnitude is going to come with growing pains. So mm-hmm. You know, you need clean data sets, you need people monitoring it, you need regulatory advice so we know what is legal, what is not. I can definitively say that I will go for the low-hanging fruit, that that is going to definitively change the way we do business in this space. I definitely agree, especially having gone to the American Telehealth Association, their national conference this year, the majority of folks there were either talking about AI, presenting something related to AI, and that kind of emerging technology. So I do think we're going to see a major shift in that space and how we use that technology. This is why I kind of led the conversation with saying it's it's exciting, but also a little bit fear-inducing, right? Because right. there's an exciting future in which, you know, if you can get those large, clean, de-identified data sets, you can really impact differential diagnoses, large-scale standardization of treatment options. I mean, there, there's... There's a lot of exciting opportunity here. Obviously, where the fear comes in is, is how is that going to be regulated and how is it going to be controlled by the human hands that created it? And what is the role of the profit motive or at least mm-hmm. the cost-saving motive in all of this? Right, right. And I do think we have to be cognizant of the fact that human bias does come into this and it's coming into these data sets already and we have to be cognizant of that. Absolutely. I mean, we've been proving this for decades, right? That that even the most sophisticated, rudimentary at this point, right, versions (laughs) of artificial intelligence like video and facial recognition software is inherently, you know, biased toward particular groups of people. And we know that controlled studies can have biases, can have all kinds of other things as well. So, and when you have something that can advance at that pace with no clear international or even just federal guidance, that's what starts to worry me, especially if it becomes potentially a lucrative business. We're a federally funded entity. We get to sort of stay out of that. That's not our main project here, you know? So I can say that, but I also appreciate the real difficult financial situation many healthcare institutions are in. So the other sort of more nebulous prediction I have is I do think the practical implication of health equity and digital equity will become more front and center than even it already is now, as we were alluding to earlier. Bias, unconscious bias, implicit bias, all of these different prejudicial things do exist and finding ways to overcome that in the digital realm where you don't have that face-to-face, in-person, human connection component to mitigate it will, of course, be a challenge. And I think it will go beyond just talking about hardware and software. You know, I think it will definitely be making its way into like actual care delivery, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I'd say that's something that needs to be built into telehealth programs and telehealth technologies from the ground up. You can't have something finished and then say, oh, let's put the equity in. It's got to be part of the process from the start. That is the ideal, right? Um, right. <laughs> well, and then ideally, too, the people who are building this, you you want to be, you know, sufficiently representative of the group that you're serving as well. And we know all of these are sort of built around systemic inertia. And so overcoming these things that may not necessarily be intentional, but are nevertheless having real material impact on people and whole groups of people for that matter is something to consider. 
I guess those are two, one very broad and sort of fuzzy and one that seems to, again, be low-hanging fruit, but nevertheless something I believe to be <laughs> a, uh, an imminent reality in, in the next few years. No, I think it's important to mention. So before we go today, I would be remiss in not asking you, what are your hopes for the future of the UMTRC? I mean, I hope to build a long-term sustainable center. The partnerships that we have built over the last, especially six to seven years, are invaluable, but finding new spaces to, for lack of better term, sort of infiltrate as a, uh, <laughs> you know, as a as a sort of like sneak advocate, right? You know, just really being able to focus not just on individual providers and their questions for like, what is reimbursable and how much, or like, can this person provides telehealth across state lines because I'm traveling to Wisconsin? For me, it's it's the sustainability comes far beyond getting paid for webinars or training or getting federal funds. It's building relationships that last through transitions of directors, through faculty appointments, all these different things that really build in telehealth and, of course, health equity as foundational components of general conversations going forward. Not just like, oh, they're their telehealth group and they're doing their thing, but being more firmly integrated into the wider healthcare landscape. Because as I said, the optimal use of telehealth has not been <laughs> settled yet. And so- mm -hmm. I won't pretend that it is, and there's no way for us to actually arrive at some sort of consensus if we don't talk. No, I definitely agree with that. Well, Luke, thanks for hopping on and chatting with me today. I'm looking forward to working with you in the future here as we continue to uh, spread the footprint of the UMTRC all throughout our region. Same, Danielle. Thanks for having me on. Hope to be on soon, maybe with another guest at some point. I'm really excited to get going. For sure. Thanks so much. For listening to a virtual view. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.